Om Vasudeva Sutam Devam Kamsa Chanuramardhanam Devaki Parmanandam Krishnam Vande Jagat Gurum Mukam Karoti Vachalam Pangum Langayati Girim Yat Kripa Tamaham Vande Parmanandam Madhavam We salute Sri Krishna, the archetypical soul, the source of supreme bliss, the son of Vasudeva, the bliss of Devaki, the destroyer of negativities, whose eloquence makes the mute speak, causes the cripple to climb the highest mountain. Salutations to Sri Krishna. Om Yam Brahmanendra Rudramarutaha Shtanvanti Davoishtavoy Vedai Sangaparakramo Panashadoy Gayantiyam Samagaha Dhyanavastita Tadgatena Manasha Pashantiyam Yogino Yashantam Navidu Sura Suragana Devaya Tasmai Namaha Our eternal salutations to that one who is the truth of life and existence who is the source of existence and whom the saints and sages of different religious traditions call by various names. Our eternal salutations to that one whose glories are sung in the different scriptures of the various religious traditions of the world, but whose infinite and undying grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our eternal salutations to that one upon whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their hearts, realizing an ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he prompt our minds toward the path of truth and righteousness. May she reveal herself into our souls and destroy the gloom of death, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Sahana, Om Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bunaktu, Sahaviryam Karavavahai, Tejasvi Navadita Mastu, Mavidvi Shavahai, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us, and may Brahman illumine our thinking consciousness. May we not find fault with each other, with the world, or with the teachings. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om It's the 7th of May in year 2005 and we meet at SRV Oregon. We have a chance to look into the teachings of the great archetypical soul we were just chanting about. Devaki Parmanandam Krishnam Vande Jagadgurum. He's the world teacher who is the son of 
Vasudeva and the bliss of his mother Devaki and so forth. And we are looking into chapter 14 because last time I was here a few months ago we did chapter 13. The Gita is very unique. Brahma Sutras and Upanishads are very, very non-dual and almost like Zen koans are somewhat abstruse and simultaneously difficult and simple to comprehend. But the Bhagavad Gita leaves no room for doubt. It's steeped in the syrup of bhakti, fried in the butter of wisdom, uh, if I can paraphrase Sri Ramakrishna. And also it contains all those wonderful teachings which apply to the arena of work, karma yoga, which is a difficult field for us. And remember last time the chapter was called Kshetra, Kshetragya Yoga, the field in its knower. So Krishna was busy telling us, as Shankara does in his Vivika Chudamani, which we're studying in Hawaii, the difference between the self and the non-self, basically he's saying there's the field that's made of nature, what is called Prakriti in Sanskrit. The only thing we don't know about Prakriti in the West is that it has its unmanifested form too. We're puzzled about that. We think things are born and die. We think things are created and destroyed, but that's not true. And even science is beginning to know that energy and matter are just convertible. But if you put that into spiritual terms, you find out what Krishna and the great seers have been saying from time immemorial back in this ancient culture to the time of the ancient rishis, that everything is non-originated. But we think in terms of origins. So here, when he says field, in the last chapter we studied, chapter 13, Chitra, everything is made of knowledge. That's a kind of samadhi, if you realize that. It's called sambragyata, samadhi, lower samadhi, by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras. It's called savikalpa samadhi, by Vedanta. And it's called jnanakasha, by Yoga Vashishta system. In other words, if you perceive that everything is made of knowledge, Everything's a form of knowledge in the create world, and it is in the projected world, then you're living in a state of samadhi. We usually put that word off to a very, very high state, but of course that means nirvikalpa. When you dissolve the mind, you get outside the ego structure, and you become the witness, like we were just chanting. Satyena labya stapasa hye satman. You know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, as Christ put it. But your eye has to be single in order to do that. And that's more on the level of a nirvikalpa samadhi, where everything dissolves down to nothingness. But along the way, you have these lower samadhis. You're still possessed of the sense of I, my bliss. I'm having the experience. It's my knowledge. It's my truth. And so there's still some sense of ego in there, no matter how subtle it may be. And in fact, you have to keep that sense of ego there in order to remain in the body. That's why beings do go into nirvikalpa because they see through the roots of the body-mind mechanism and nature and they give it up. And some of them don't come back. That's called videha mukti, being free from all bodies. Not just a fleshy body, flesh, bones, and blood, and so forth. The seven datus and the five elements and the constituents of the body and all that. But they give up a mental body too. They give up what Christianity would call a soul. What Christianity calls a soul is what Vedanta calls the mind. It goes from birth to death and death to birth. That is, it goes from heaven to earth to hell, if you want to put it in those terms. But 
beyond that soul with a small s, there's a supreme soul, which is called Atman in Vedanta. That doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't think, it doesn't act, it's not subject to any modification, whether it be birth, death, disease, old age, growth, or decay. None of those things it has. It's your true nature. Tasmat tatamasi. Therefore, thou art that. The conclusion of the Upanishads. That's the true self. But we think in terms in the West of this comings and goings. We take evolution to be real. We take the body-mind mechanism to be real. And we take God to be a creator. The mind is the creator. And it doesn't create at all. It projects. Well, that's what Krishna starts off saying here and what I was just saying in the introduction. You see number one there on the board. Idam jnanam upashricha. Take refuge in knowledge. Because knowledge is the supreme purifier. Now, in the West, we know that pretty well. However, our knowledge is secularized. We value knowledge and we value intellect. But ignorance in Vedanta is not sin. It's lack of knowledge of the self. It's lack of knowing one thing. And knowing that one thing, Atman, your true self, makes you aware that all knowledge lies within you. There are seven steps to higher knowledge, just spiritual knowledge, which is not secularized, but which is truth, eternal. And the second step is called all knowledge lies within you. That's what the father of yoga tells us, Patanjali. Krishna puts it in terms of uh, take refuge in that knowledge. So as a sort of prerequisite to that, idam jnanam upashrita, take refuge in knowledge. What does he say? Well, let's read the text first. Sloka 1. I shall declare the supreme knowledge, Arjuna, the best of all forms of knowledge, by knowing which all the sages have passed from this world to the highest perfection. And this sloka that's on the board. They who, having devoted themselves to this knowledge, have attained to unity with me. They are neither born at the time of creation, nor are they disturbed at the time of dissolution. Things can come and go around you all they want, you see. Prakriti can flow. Maya can insinuate. People can believe or not believe and so forth. But you remain in yourself. You're not disturbed at the time of creation, nor are you dissolved at the time of dissolution. Because creation and preservation and destruction are all in you. You're the one that's creating it, sustaining it, and, and destroying it. Now this is very important for us to understand so that we quit calling God a creator. Creation is vibration. But when it comes to the mind that is no mind, there's no vibration left. There's no objectification in Brahman. Because there's no vibration. It's like you going into deep sleep. Do you know anything in deep sleep? There's no object there. Because you're not waking, nor are you dreaming. In waking and dreaming, there's objects. But in deep sleep, there's no object at all. That is, there's no effect. There's only cause. Cause is still there, and even cause is unseen, because you're in a state of nescience in deep sleep. You're very close to Brahman in deep sleep. That's why you wake up refreshed. But you don't see Brahman because you're, you're not spiritually awakened yet. Your mind hasn't become illumined. It hasn't destroyed the ignorance, or you might put it, become cognizant of the fact that the seer is different than the seen. 
that the field is different than the knower. It's still identified with the field, still identified with the objects, still attached to them, still covets them, still wants them. So it'll create them again when it wakes up. You see, it's not created or, or destroyed at all. Holy Mother used to say that. Do you think God creates in seven days or in uh, 430,320,000,000 year cycles? No, he does it all in an instant and dissolves it in an instant. And the mind mimics that. Our minds mimic that. We'll awake and it's there. We'll go into dream and it's there, but in a subtler and, and, and less dependable way. And then we'll go into deep sleep and it'll all be gone. Now, if you go to death, it's gone. If you go to samadhi, it's gone. So they noticed these things. They were scientists of the inner terrain. They looked at that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Vedanta has had the advantage over other religions, with the exception of maybe China, to have looked for so long at the nature of existence. And therefore they've come up with the most illumined of all conclusions about it. They've seen the difference between the seer and the seen, between the field and its knower. They're really versed in that. And they produced a huge amount of saints and seers and sages as a result. Any one you read, like the ones I've mentioned today, Lord Buddha, Patanjali, Vashishta, Lord Kapila, Krishna, you can go on and on counting Yogyavalkya and Vishwamitra and other great souls who've left behind these great scriptures. That's one of the things about Vedanta. It doesn't have one scripture and one prophet or avatar, or divine incarnation. It has dozens and dozens of scriptures and hundreds of seers. That's India. And you can look into any one of these and have a profound awakening. And they're non-exclusive. They're non-denominational. That's why we call it Vedanta that wisdom portion of the Vedas, which talks about Brahman only. So, Krishna says, those are not disturbed at the time of creation or, or disturbed at the time of dissolution, who have devoted themselves to this inner knowledge. Therefore, become a yogi, Arjuna, he says. Become a yogi, become one who wants to get into yoga, union with Brahman. You'll know the nature of creation or this manifestation, or this expression along the way, by a matter of course. When you come to know it as being unreal, you'll give it up. And that's what's called the path of renunciation, a word that's not very popular in the West. But Sri Ramakrishna has made it a lot easier for us. He says everyone must renounce the world who wants to be free everyone, but the monks do it in one way and the householders do it in another. The monks do it internally and externally. One monk told me, uh, a monk is a man who takes a canoe to a far distant island and then burns it, never to come back, give it up completely. But a householder has to renounce what? Internally. A householder needs to be able to move among the objects of the senses, knowing them to be unreal without getting attached to them, therefore remaining free. And amongst the householders have been born these great souls, like Vivekananda and others, and the great rishis, 
See, it's a householder path is what I particularly am working on in my life and in the West, and I can tell you it's no easy task <laughs> because there's so many very archaic superstitions still prevalent among us, one that God creates. And science is making it easier on one scale, but they're studying just physical matter. Fine, if they want to concentrate on that, fine, but we're not going to go and consult them about spiritual matters. We have to consult an expert. Sri Ramakrishna said, if we have an illness, we go to a doctor. If we have a court case, we go to a lawyer. If we want to know about the nature of reality, are we going to consult Time magazine? See, who says, back in the 80s, God is dead. See, oh yeah, I'm going to take your word for it. See, ridiculous. We have to go to those beings who have seen God. Like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, so he said, by seeing Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, we see God face to face. That's what Gandhi said about our master, Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. By seeing Ramakrishna, we see God face to face. So there are beings who associate with name and form, where others are actually believing that they're born in the womb and that they grow and they form. Growth and transformation have to be seen as unreal. It's not like we're not going to go through them, but it's the body-mind mechanism that's going through them, not the Atman. We have to be real clear about that. Atman doesn't go through these transformations. You look back into even the Western philosophers. Some of them knew that. Some of the Roman philosophers, Greek philosophers. The body is not a location for the soul. The body is not a location for the soul. It means your consciousness is never in time and space. That it's been routed into time and space and identified with time and space is a ruse, a trick of Maya. You've bought into it. You've bought it hook, line, and sinker. And society and upbringing, parental upbringing, and conventional religion, business and politics have all played a part convincing you of, of the reality of this ruse. Vedanta moves to break that down. Yoga moves to break that down. Buddhism moves to break that down. True Christianity, true Judaism, true Islam all move to break that down so that you know the self. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you can live free until the karma that created this body is wound off. When the, all the karma that in the past and the karma that will create the future is burnt away and neutralized, attenuated and neutralized, then all you have left is this body karma, this present life. And you'll see beings living in a state of samadhi in their present life who have taken refuge in knowledge, this highest knowledge. Paravid, not a paravid. A paravid means lower knowledge, means science, mathematics, arts, business, all these secular sciences. But when they take refuge in the highest of all knowledges, paravid, supreme. Remember we just said, yat param, you are supreme. So paravid means the highest knowledge, which means non-duality. There's no two and there's no many. That's only an appearance. There's only one. Thou art that. Tasmat tatvamasi. Prashantam. Prashantam means quiet, like intrinsically quiet. Sandra likes that. See, intrinsically quiet. Sometimes she wears earmuffs and then practices vakmauna. Doesn't speak or hear anything. Shuts off the senses. When she can do that at will without the earmuffs, then she'll be illumined. 
There's three kinds of silence, three kinds of fasting. One's speech, vakmauna. One's kriya mauna, that means no action, being able to be actionless. And the hardest, chit mauna, silencing the mind. Those are the three best kinds of fasting, the highest kinds of spiritual fasting. When you can do those at will, those are the three great practices, the three great maunas. Remember Ramana Maharshi, mauna. He was a muni kept silent most of the time. And if you're silent, you build up a great power. Build up a great power inside yourself. Store that up. It's a a form of austerity. And the self is realized by austerity, constantly cultivated, right? What is Kriyamana like? First of all, and it's early stage, it's, you might say, a kind of practice that forces oneself to be quiet. Keep yourself from running about. You're not so active, because you've become so active, so habituated to action that you're... Do I have to explain it? (laughs) It's obsessive action, and the West is showing it up very much nowadays. But in a subtler form, when you get to the subtler aspects of of Kriyamana, you realize what Krishna says in the Gita, uh, that one who knows action and inaction, and inaction and action, that one truly knows. So come to a state of nishkama karma. You do action without accruing any karma. And that's why Christ and Buddha and others were the most efficient energy mechanisms. Everything they did was in God, was done in oneness. So they weren't really acting at all. It's sort of one of those enigmas like the unborn, a jativada. There's no no origins. They're not really born and they don't act because they're so identified with their self, with the oneness, that they can bring things about by a thought. They don't really have to go and act. I and mean, that's one way of putting it, which gets back to chit mauna too. You know, if you quieted the vibrations of your mind then what happens? You realize your Atman underlying the mind. That Atman is everywhere, so then you become everywhere. That's called omniscience. You want to define the dynamics of omniscience, there it is. It means that Brahman is everywhere. You can't run somewhere to try and outrace it and get there. It's already there, you see. And it was there when you started running. It was there before you even had the thought, I'm going to start running to find it. You see, stop. <laughs> see, <laughs> when, when Divine Mother is on the battlefield, Mother Durga, with her ten arms and all her weapons, and she's fighting all the demons, she has one word she uses called a bija. Hum. And everything stops. Swords freeze in the ark. Blood stops flowing. Soldiers, elephants, everything stops. Everything freezes. She brings it all to a close. So that prashantam that you are, tasmat tatvamasi prashantam, you are that. You are that inner quietude. You're intrinsically quiet by your very nature. Right now you're trying to get a peaceful mind. See? And you could say the Atman is 
whatever that is, is intrinsically quiet, but the mind isn't quiet. But I would say the mind is even quiet. If you're talking about original mind, original incepted mind, cosmic mind, supremely blissful. 100 times the bliss of a man is an angel, celestial. 100 times the bliss of a celestial is a god or goddess. 100 times the bliss of a god or a goddess is Brahma, the creator god, Mahat, the womb, the firstborn. 100 times the bliss of Brahma is a sage or a seer who's realized their true nature. The humankind in our tradition is much higher than the gods because they have the ability to realize their unborn nature. The gods are fixed positions in a cosmos that's continually going on in cycles. They can't abandon their position. You see, they're assigned that position. Like a sun is assigned. And in fact, uh, Surya is the sun god, called by different names in different traditions, and he's burning all the time, you see, for thousands and millions of years. He can't abandon his position. It's assigned him. But we're not assigned our positions here. <laughs> we've reassigned ourselves into ignorance. We've taken away our own freedom. We are Atman, all abiding, ever free, ever pure, one without a second, free of imperfection. And we've assigned ourselves to being imperfect, to being sinners, to being born. The greatest disease of all is rebirth. All other diseases come out of that. You should put that rebirth to death. Put death in its own grave. Make fear afraid of itself. And do it with uh, nishjaha, firm resolve. Hear the truth, and the truth will set you free. Shravana, manana, nidijasanam. Hear the truth first. Roll it over in your mind. Consider it well come to a conclusion and get the experience of spirituality. That's what Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa wants us to do. Get the direct experience. Or Swamiji, his main student, said, of books and theories and doctrines, there are thousands. Oh, for just an ounce of practice. Oh, for just an ounce of practice. He said, when he and those 16 disciples of Ramakrishna, after Master had passed away, said, we were 16 young boys. The parents wanted us to come home, but Ramakrishna had invested us with the desire for monasticism to start an order. And all the other religious orders in Calcutta, India, and Bengal were all against us, trying to snip us at the bud. But Ramakrishna had given us one thing that the others didn't have, the desire to live a spiritual life. Not just to talk, but to do. And now it's one of the greatest organizations in the world doing the best work. It has its mat side of it, where the monks are, are disseminating wisdom. It has the mission side, where they're going and helping in tidal waves and famines. and They're first on the scene with food and various things. So they were nothing a couple hundred years ago. And could have easily been snuffed out, as it were. But Ramakrishna invested them with that one thing. In books and temples vain thy search. Thine only is the hand which holds the rope which drags thee on. Therefore, 
cease lament, let go thy hold. Say Om Tat Sat Om. That's one of the verses out of Song of the Sannyasin, which he wrote. In books and temples, vain thy search. Well, we're finding that to be fairly true, I think, as we go about looking for true religion. But Swamiji also said another thing. Everyone from Ramohan Roy right on back to Lord Buddha made the same mistake. They blamed religion for the problems. They didn't blame mankind. Religion, with a capital R, I've been trying to explain this to our young people of the day, teenagers and people who are young. Religion is nitya, eternal, anadi, without beginning, aporashaya, not of human authorship. That's what Vedanta calls religion. And Swamiji wanted to bring it back. His definition of religion is true religion based on love of God, bhakti, and true wisdom based on non-duality, advaita, two wings of a bird, love and wisdom. After you have that and you can fly, then you begin to serve. And back to your question, when you begin to serve selflessly, then you're not accruing any karma. Karma comes when you serve with motive. It doesn't matter what the motive is, higher or lower, karma comes of it. Whether you're doing things out of greed or whether you're doing things out of altruism, you'll still net karma. Buddhists call it punya and papa, merit and demerit. You're on the merit-demerit system. See? I'm now a good person. I'm going to go to some heavenly realm where some god is presiding, some lower god. But Krishna says, the votaries of the ancestors go to the ancestors. The votaries of the gods go to the gods. The votaries of the Buddhas go to the Buddhas. Buddhas are like any physical being or ghostly being. But my votaries come to me, Arjuna. He's talking about the Supreme Lord. That Brahman of which you are formed. See, that's your true nature. Atma. Atman is Brahman. However, Atman has been identifying with the five sheaths, body-mind mechanism, psychophysical being. Now take that identification off and place it back where it is supposed to be and awaken to your true nature. And be free. There is no other purpose for life than that, Ramakrishna says. That one is born to no purpose who, having been given the blessing of a human body, fails to realize God in this life. Call God what you will. Brahman, Allah, Almighty Father, it matters not. It's the one existence which is indivisible. And tasmat tatvamasi. Therefore, thou art that. They had thousands of systems, ways of explaining this throughout hundreds and thousands of years, and they finally boiled it down to that. Well, we've been through it all, we've seen it all, we've even seen Brahman, and conclusion is thou art that. The answer isn't important. <laughs> <laughs> Tasmat, therefore, Tatvamasi. So Tatvamasi is one of the four great sayings. Thou art that. 
the others are pragyanam brahman, your consciousness alone. That is, pragya, wisdom. You are that wisdom. Therefore, take refuge in it. Idam jnana upashrita. That's sloka two going on. Sloka three, my womb is the mahat brahma. Mahat brahma, remember, great mind is also prakriti nature. So this Mahat Brahman, this Prakriti, is flowing in and out of manifestation to non-manifestation. It is that wherein I place the germ, and that is the birth of all beings. Whatever forms are produced in any wombs, the great Brahman is the womb, and I am the seed-giving father. Those first four slokas very much deal with Na Prabhavam, I have no origin. And he asks you, as it were, to take refuge in knowledge, in this higher knowledge, so that you come to know that. So don't believe these pseudo-Advaitists who are saying, you're that, so you don't need to do anything. That's horse sense. You see, it's not true. Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother, and Swamiji, who are the supreme teachers of this age, in my assessment, in assessment of hundreds and thousands of other beings now, have told us you must to work very, very hard. Spiritual path is very precipitous, razor's edge. So put yourself to it. Take refuge in knowledge and come to this realization. They've come here to convince us to give this up, See, especially if we're suffering. Now, if you're not world-weary yet and you worship mammon, are you damned? No, not at all. You just have a very harsh teacher. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, the mother cat treats her kitten one way and a mouse another way. So those people who are taking the world as their guru, where they love the world, they love mammon, then they're like mouse in the claws of Maya. See, They're going to be raked over the various coals of different experiences, pleasurable, painful, klista, aklista, and those create vibrations in the mind, and those vibrations create impressions, and those impressions cause you to be reborn. Vasanas, desires, give rise to attachment. Attachment and brooding gives rise to samskaras, mental impressions. Samskaras crystallize the mind. You take that mind with you to the next birth, not the body. So it seems really like you're the mind. You're definitely much more the mind than the body. Going from heaven to earth to hell is, is a product of the mind, not the soul. It's the mind that does all that. But what if you were to take refuge in the knowledge of the mind, the radiant mind, the pure mind? See, Sri Ramakrishna said, Chit-chudi, the mind that's been purified of attachments to vibration, to objects. Because remember, objects are just thought, made manifest. It's easy to see. Everyone understands that, I hope. It, this was never created. It was conjured up out of your mind. Maya simply provided the elements for it. The elements are earth, air, fire, water, and ether, right? Not really. The elements are solidity, liquidity, homogeneity, radiance. Those are the real elements. Earth is just solidity. And solidity is one of the powers of Maya to make you think something is real. Refer to science if you don't believe me and see that it's not. It's not solid at all. 
it's vibrating particles changing every minute of a second, depending on if you look at it in the level of protons or neutrons or quarks or subatomic particles. It's changing. This is an appearance. It's not real. Call it ephemeral or temporary. If you want to be kind, call it a manifestation of consciousness or an expression. Or if you want to sharpen the sword a bit, you could just say it's an illusion. It's all conceptualization. It's all dream life. The dream power of the Absolute is making this all seem real. Maya herself. See Maya, and she goes away. Sri Ramakrishna said, if you once look at her that way, not the way science is looking at her, but if you once look at her with the witness consciousness well under wraps, she tends to get afraid and take off. See, She recedes. And when she recedes, there's Brahman. She's been covering him all the time. Maya has two powers, obscuration and distortion. Takes the truth of Brahman and either obscures it outright by various coverings. That's called vivarta, false superimposition. Or she distorts something, makes it seem like something other than what it really is. So we look at automobile and we see an automobile. Sage looks at automobile and sees Atman. We look at the world and we see a world. There's no such thing as a world, there's only Brahman. That's how you see Brahman in everything by first not becoming seduced by Maya and thinking that the form is Brahman, because the wave form is unreal. The name wave is unreal. Name and form belong to Maya. That's the field. That's the field, but you're the seer of the field. And when you come to see that as it truly is, then you're taking refuge in higher knowledge. And that sets you free. Those of you who have been with SRV 10, 15 years uh, have heard me say this so many times, but one time you'll hear it, or maybe you'll hear it a few times over a period of time, and all of a sudden it will just make sense to you, be intense. You might be bored at class one visit and entirely inspired on another visit, see? because the mind is either in tamas or rajas, and then another time it's in sattva. And that's what he begins to talk about next. Sattva, rajas, tamas, born of prakriti, bind the indestructible embodied one into the body. What keeps the atman deluded as to its true nature and, and makes it think that it's the body-mind mechanism? Brajas, Thomas, and Sattva, the three gunas. We have made our way only through the first four or five slokas, which is my fault, because I get into examining these things and so many teachings come up around them, but we've just gotten to the teaching of the gunas. Many of you might be thinking, oh, I've heard so much about the gunas, and others of you are thinking, what's a guna? So... <laughs> It's a quality of nature, and there are three of them. If you want to put them in scientific terms, sattva is balance. You see that little chart there I put up, which we'll get to in a minute. Sattva is balance. Rajas is activity. Tamas is inertia. Those are giving them scientific terms. Now, when Krishna talks about the gunas, he's talking about how the gunas affect our mind. But the gunas are in everything. In fact, they have to be operative for any kind of a 
creation, projection, to come into being. There has to be those three modes. Like in nature, if you see a clear pool that's deep and pure, it's sattva. If you see a restless, rolling stream, it's rajas. If you see a, another pool that's still but stagnant, it's tamas. So you have these, these three qualities running through everything. As they pertain to the mind, that's why he starts out saying, idam ganam upashrita, uh, take refuge in knowledge, because uh, if you have knowledge about the gunas, you have an advantage over other beings, because it helps you to watch the mind, especially when it's not in witness mode. When it, when it deviates from witness mode, it goes into Thomas. When Thomas gets a hold of the mind, You've got slothfulness or inertia. You've got depression, brooding, and so forth, boredom, sleep. These things are ignorance. These are all effects of Thomas getting a hold of the mind. Now, a minute, an hour, a day, or a month later, uh, in cycles inside of cycles, you might realize that Rajas has a hold of the mind. A lot of activities going on. You're restless. You have a lot of desire, motive, selfish desire. That's basically Rajas. You could say Thomas is black, Rajas is red. Now, Sattva is white. And when Sattva has a hold of the mind, there's balance. But they're not airtight compartments. If you blend black paint with red paint, you get brown. So there's a Thomas that's influenced by Rajas. That is, you're doing action, but you're doing it very poorly. By the same way, there's a Sattvic white that's, if you put white and red paint together, it turns kind of pinkish, you see, depending on how much of each you add. So there's there's a kind of rajasic action that leans more towards higher good, like altruism. Or there's a sattvic action that leans more towards less higher attainments, so it's gotten tinged by a little of rajas. So there's all these permutations of the gunas going on. As they pertain to the mind, it's very advantageous for us to know about them in this system of Vedanta, so that um, we can tell when our mind is going through these things. We have a label to put on them. Oh, I'm kind of tamasic right now, or I'm very rajasic, or I want to strive for sattva. I always want to be in balance, and I want to have an upper hand on rajas and tamas. If they insinuate themselves upon me, I want to be able to know the difference and, and lean towards sattva. Like meditation, we want to have a meditation that's beneficial and so forth, then you want to remain in a sattvic mode. The thing about sattva is, since it is a mode of nature, it's also going to limit you. So what you really want, ideally, is to be beyond all three gunas. When you have a pure mind, when you're in illumination, you're beyond these three modes. That's instanced by the fact that some people are very good, and that goodness becomes a barrier to attaining something that's beyond good. And we see that in different uh, ways and walks and applications in life. So people get invested of sattva. But there is also something called pure sattva, which I'll get to later with that visual I'm going to hand out. So these gunas, let's examine them. Of these gunas, sattvic is stainless, luminous, and unobstructive. It binds by creating attachment to happiness and attachment to knowledge. Oh, there you are. Sattva is good, but what does it do to you? You have the ego of knowledge, and you like happiness, pleasure. You see, if happiness comes to you, you're, you're happy, but that's sattva visiting you. However, you can become unhappy the next day or, or 
angry because sattva left you. Like we've had that experience. We are feeling great one night. We go to sleep for eight hours and get up and you're grouchy. You're having a bad day. What happened? You see, my mood changed. No, one guna got upper hand and the other fell behind. They're constantly getting predomination over one another and is switching. This is how they explain it in Vedanta. Why? Because you're not your feelings, you're not your emotions, you're not your mind, you're not your body, you're not your energy. This is one of the basic teachings you get, Dehajasa, you're not the body-mind mechanism. So then if you're not those things, why should you be your emotions? Why should you be your disease? Why should you be any of the modifications that come through these sheaths when you're not the sheaths? So they give you this teaching, the three gunas, to show how these are modes in nature. That's one of the advantages of knowing, because if you know their modes in nature, why feel guilty about it? You see? You can blame it on the devil, right? No. You can blame it on Thomas, but it doesn't make it any less difficult to bear, so you want to transcend it. See? But you're not personifying an evil or blaming God. You see, these are modes of nature that are natural. They come and they go. They're a matter of course. <coughs> so it's a nice way of thinking about it, different than some of the ways we've been thinking about it in the West. No rajas to be the nature of passion, the source of thirst and attachment. It binds fast the embodied one by attachment to action. Sri Krishna often says that those who die live and die in restlessness, they're born in the wombs of the restless laborers, which you can see by that graph, which we'll get through in a minute. But no Thomas to be born of ignorance, deluding all embodied beings, it binds fast, O Arjuna, by heedlessness, indolence, and sleep. Sattva binds one to happiness, rajas to action, Thomas veils knowledge and binds one to heedlessness. Sattva asserts itself by predominating over Rajas and Thomas, and Rajas predominates over Sattva and Thomas, Thomas over Sattva and Rajas. Obviously, they switch around. But when the light of knowledge beams through all the gateways of the body, then it may be known that Sattva is predominant. You see people in Sattvic modes, then light's coming out of them. You see, they're happy, they're knowledgeable, they're sharing, they're open, they're generous, embarrassing. that's the light of Sattva beaming through them. But when greed activity, that is selfish activity and restless activity, the undertaking of actions with the wrong motive, unrest, longing, desire, when these arise, then you know rajas is predominant in them. See, this also helps you to see people. You don't blame people. You see that they're under the influence of one of the gunas. When indiscrimination, inertness, heedlessness, and delusion rise, then Thomas is predominant. Here's an interesting piece of information now. I like these slokas. If the embodied one meets with death when sattva is predominant, he goes to the pure worlds of those who know the highest. That's why you need to practice sadhana all your life. Keep your mind balanced, especially toward the end. If you know yourself to be birthless and deathless, then you won't brood on death. You see, by brooding on death, you make it real. When it's not, it's an illusion. You're, you're unborn. If you're unborn, how can you die? So Shankar, whom we'll study tomorrow, has a great song he sings. Uh, when I was a baby, I was attached to my mother's breast. When I was a young boy, I was attached to sport. When I was a young man, I was attached to a young woman. 
when I was old, I was attached to brooding. But to the Supreme Brahman, alas, I was never attached. So all through his life, he went through these various states, and the gunas had had a hold of him. Be attached to Supreme Brahman. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your soul, and make that a lifelong practice. Commit yourself. Got to have an ideal in life. It's your anchor. It's the rudder of your boat by which you can steer through this ocean of samsara. And always know that you start in Brahman and end in Brahman. This sojourn in between is also in Brahman, but you have to find ways of knowing that. Otherwise, you fall into forgetfulness. And those samskars in your mind, impressed there by living in tamasic and rajasic states, become real. You see, and you take on a body and you say, I am the body. There's my parents. I'm born. I'm imperfect. Yeah, all these things happen. And uh, it's all a dream. You're always the Atman. Now a dreamer, awake and be free. You run a race in a dream. You get a trophy. You're thirsty. You see landscape go by. You breathe hard. You get exercise. You wake up. None of that happened. <laughs> no trophy. No exercise. You didn't go anywhere. You were always laying in your bed. That's the way Shankar describes the waking state, too. You don't do anything ever. You're actionless. You're prashantam. Tasmat tatvamasi. I am ever free and pure. No imperfections. I am one without a second. Yat param. I'm also supreme. So the embodied one meets with death when sattva is predominant, goes to the pure worlds. You see people born in uh, enlightened wombs, Krishna says. The wombs of rishis, the wombs of yogis, or at the very least, the wombs of sattvic people who are good, ethical people, dharmic people, we would say, in Hinduism and Buddhism. But if you meet with death and rajas, that one is born among those attached to action. Dying in Thomas, born in the wombs of the deluded. It's obvious. You look around the world, these different kinds of beings. The fruit of good action is sattvika. The fruit of rajas is pain. Ignorance is the fruit of Thomas, so they each have their own fruits. From sattva arises wisdom and greed from rajas. So if you're in a sattvic mood, you'll have wisdom rising con continually, almost without seeking it, because you were just told to take refuge in knowledge. That knowledge is within you. You don't have to seek it. It rises spontaneously. The Buddhists call that dharma mega samadhi. You reach a certain place where virtues are showering on you. It means the rain cloud of virtue. So things that were already in you that you had developed in previous lifetimes come out because you're accenting that part of yourself with sattva, you see, that's bringing out all these good qualities. You don't even know where they came from. People are amazed. You have geniuses and seers and various people who are very successful in what they do and are doing it rightly, dharmically. It's all coming out of that sattvic element. So wisdom arises from sattva, greed from rajas, heedlessness and error arise from tamas, also ignorance. Those who are fixed in sattva go upwards, rajikas remain in the middle, tamasikas go down. When the seer perceives no agent other than the gunas and knows him who is higher than the gunas, he enters into my being, becomes one with me. All action is born of the gunas of Prakriti. I do nothing.
The embodied one, having crossed over the three gunas, out of which the body is evolved, is freed from birth, death, decay, and pain, and attains to eternal life. Arjuna Uvacha, he has a question. He asks this question of Krishna. He says, What are the marks, O Lord, of him who has crossed over the three gunas? What is his conduct, and how does he rise above the gunas? Sri Krishna, Sri Bhagavanavacha, the Lord said, That one, O Pandava, who hates not light, activity or delusion when present, nor longs for them after they are absent, who sitting like one unconcerned is moved not by the gunas, who knowing that the gunas operate is firm and moves not, balanced in pleasure and pain, self-abiding, viewing a clod of earth and a stone and gold alike, the same to agreeable and disagreeable, firm, the same in censure and praise, the same in honor and dishonor, the same to friend and foe, who has abandoned all undertakings, is said to have risen above the gunas. And that one serves me with unswerving devotion, going beyond the gunas, becomes fit for the Brahman state. And that brings us to number four, Brahma Bhuyaya Kalpate, those who are fitted for the Brahman state. So if you want to condense this whole chapter, really what he's saying is take refuge in knowledge, come to know about the three gunas, transcend the three gunas, and be fitted for the Brahman state. There are other little teachings here and there in it, but that's a real good capsulization. Who's fitted for the Brahman state? Well, let's just take them in a row. Prakasham cha pravrittam cha mohan. Hates not light, activity, or delusion, whether present or not. That is, light, activity, and delusion, the three gunas really. Whether they're present or not, he doesn't hate them. And he's not averse to them nor attracted to them. This is how to transcend the three. You might take help of a higher guna occasionally, see, but you want to kind of keep your mind from falling into the lower gunas. When they do fall into the lower gunas, you want to be able to rest in your Atman. Because if you're born in nature, you'll experience the gunas. So knowing the gunas, then you can come to transcend them. If you don't know them, they mix up in there. and You can't define them. You don't know what's happening to you, or you only know momentarily what's happening to you. You can't define the cycles. But become witness, you stand back from all those and notice their movements. So the best way to do that, he says, is don't hate light, activity, or delusion, the three gunas, if they're present or not. Simply detach from them. The next one is unconcerned whether the gunas operate or not. The next one is samadukkha sukha. Sukha and dukkha mean happiness and sorrow or pleasure and pain. So sama means equal. So same in pleasure and pain. Remember, these are qualifications for those who are fitted for the Brahman state. This is how he ends the chapter. The next one is svastaha, steady in the self. Svastaha. Next one is Samalusta Ashma Kanchanaha. He regards a clod, a stone, and a piece of gold equally. Sri Ramakrishna even practiced that on the river banks near the temple. They took a clod of dirt and a coin 
He said, cloth is coin, coin is cloth, and he threw them both in the river. <laughs> it was actually a practice he did. They're both made of earth. Somebody's assigned value to one and no value to another. He wanted to become samasukadukha, free of any kind of pleasure and pain or duality. So he simply did the exercise and made sure his mind knew that. So, very equal-minded in that way. The next one is Tulya Priya Apriyaha. Priya means deer. So, he acts the same to the deer and the despised. Equal to enemy, arbiter, and friend. That's how you become fitted for the Brahman state. In Gandhi it meant ahimsa. In Jesus it meant turn the other cheek. So forth. You become uh, equal-minded. It's very hard to practice, but it's very desirable. Diraha. Diraha means firm. That's what I was talking about. Firm in your resolve. I will realize my birthless, deathless Atman in this lifetime without fail. See, that's my resolve. Tulya Ninda Atma Samstuti. Same in censure and praise. You can practice that one in the world today. Almost every hour. <laughs> Someone's going to praise you or blame you. See if you can remain even. Mana apamanyaho. Same in honor and dishonor. Very much related. Next one too. Mitra ari pakshayoho. Uh, mitra means friend. Same to friend and foe. Sarva aramba parityagi. Well, chagi means renunciation. So, that means you must be renounced in all undertakings. It doesn't mean don't do the undertakings. It doesn't mean don't do them meticulously. Those are the two objections that come up whenever people hear about giving up works. They're not saying give up works in that sense. Give up the result of the work. Give up the fruit of the work. Just do the work meticulously. Give it over to God. Offer all to God because peace follows then. All works are going to turn bad or good. When the work turns bad, you look at it a year later, it turned good again. And same with a bad action. If you dam up a river, your kids have a swimming pool, but downstream they have no water. So a good action is all of a sudden bad. See? And vice versa, knowing that about the nature of good and bad and relativity, you renounce all fruits of actions. It's one of the main teachings in the Bhagavad Gita to Krishna. He wants you to be renounced in all undertakings. It's another way of saying it. Sarva aramba parijagi. And finally, serve God with unswerving devotion. Bhakti yogena sevate. That's the qualifications for those. Brahmabhuyaya kalpate. Those who are fitted for the Brahman state. And therefore we'll end with these slokas as a repeat. That one is fitted for the Brahman state who hates not light, activity, or delusion nor longs for them when they are absent, who sitting like one unconcerned is moved not by the gunas, who knowing that the gunas operate is firm and moves not, balanced in pleasure and pain, self-abiding, viewing a clod of earth, a stone and gold the same, being the same to agreeable and disagreeable beings, always firm, the same in censure and praise, the same in honor and dishonor, the same to friend and foe, abandoning all undertakings, that one is said to have risen above the gunas. And that one who serves me with unswerving devotion, going beyond the gunas, is fitted for becoming Brahman. 
For I am the abode of Brahman, Arjuna. I am the immortal one, the immutable, the eternal dharma, and the absolute bliss. Om Iti Srimad Bhagavad Gitsu Supanishatsu Brahma Vidyayam Yoga Shastre Sri Krishna Arjuna Sambhade Gunatraya Vibhaga Yoga Nama Chaturdasho Jayaham In the Upanishad of the Bhagavad Gita, the science of Brahman, the Supreme, the knowledge of Yoga, the dialogue between Sri Krishna and Arjuna, this is the 14th discourse designated the Yoga of the Division of the Three Gunas. Now, let's end with a chant. Om Bhadram, Om Bhadram, Karnebihi Srinayama Devaha, Bhadram Pasyema Akshabir Yajatraha, Stirai Rangaish Tushtuvamsa Stanuvir, Vyashema Devahitam Yadayahu, Svastina Indra Vrida Shravaha, Svastina Pusha Vishvadevaha, Svastina Starksho Arishtanemihi, Svastino Brihaspatir Dadatu, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. May we see with these eyes what is good and spiritual, and hear with these ears what is noble and uplifting. And may we, while worshipping the Lord and Mother of the Universe, with healthy minds and bodies, live a life which is beneficial to ourselves and to others. Om Peace, Peace, Peace. May peace be unto us, may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om